So tonight, um, I'm going to be using a lot of quotes in my sermon. I typically don't love doing a ton of quotes. I usually use uh, a few quotes in a sermon to carry the sermon along, to make a point. But tonight, I'm going to lean heavily on quotes. And I'm going to do that tonight for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the people that I'm going to quote tonight will say what I want to say way better than I can say it, for one. And two, I'm just starting to wake up to the skill that we'll be talking about tonight. I'm about maybe two and a half years in, three years into this, learning this skill really well as, as a way of loving well. So uh, I'm going to lean on them tonight. Uh, we're in a series on emotionally healthy relationships, and the thesis of this series is that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. This is a quote from Peter Scazzaro, the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It is impossible to say, I am a spiritually mature person and remain an emotional infant. Those two things are incompatible. Something, something similar is found to this, very, uh, to this quote uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, the very famous love chapter. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and get, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul here is talking about having charismatic power and religious charity. If you have those two things, you can have all the makings of a powerful and spiritually mature believer, but if you do not have love, you're nothing. And what we're trying to get at in this series on emotionally healthy relationships is our ability as followers of Jesus to love well, to specifically love other people well. And to do that, we are looking at specific skills in loving well. How do we practically and very specifically love others well? And tonight we're going to learn about the skill of listening well. Listening. So um, as we do that, let's, um, let's open our our ears and our hearts, uh, pre-gathering prayer, uh, one of the things that we prayed into um, was that, that God would open the ears of our heart, that our hearts would be open to listen to God. So let's pray that together now. Lord, I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that you would open our hearts to hear you and hear from you, Lord. Um, I know as I bring up this topic we probably carry in ourselves this like feeling of being unheard or misunderstood by people. I pray tonight some of that would be, some of that gap would be bridged by us um, being heard by you and us hearing from you. And I ask God you would begin to give us the skills of hearing other people and listening to other people well. And so, by your Spirit, would you teach us? Teach us, Lord. We want to live as whole, embodied, well-loving brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. 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 Martin Buber, a Jewish philosopher and theologian, wrote a book in 1923 called I and Thou. I and Thou. This book explores how the most healthy or mature relationship possible between two human beings as being in an I-thou relationship. 
Now, this language is kind of clunky. He says, in such a relationship, I recognize that I am made in the image of God, and I recognize that everyone else is made in the image of God, makes me an I and you a thou. However, Buber argued that in most of our human relationships, we lose sight of the other, and we treat people as objects. We treat people as an it. So in reality, most of the relationships that we are in are actually an I-it relationship, where I treat you as a means to an end, the way that we might treat a phone or a watch. Now, this revelation hit Buber in a way that changed everything for him one day in 1914, the same year that World War I started, when a young man came to visit him. They talked casually, uh, Buber asking the questions, the typical questions you make in small talk, um, but because Buber had such a, like, was caught up in such a, a spiritual ex- and religious experience that morning with God, he had just, he, he, when he was encountering this young man and talking with him, he wasn't fully present to this young man. Later, Buber found out from one of the young man's friends that he had taken his own life. This story is in the Emotionally Healthy Relationships book, and it says this. The young man had committed suicide. The guilt Buber felt was not that he had somehow failed to remove the young man's despair, but that he was not fully present to him. He was so preoccupied by his religious experience earlier that morning that he failed to bring the full resources of his attention to their conversation. He did not turn to the young man with his whole being to actually feel with him. Instead of genuine listening, he brought leftovers, a courteous but partial engagement. For Buber, the experience felt like a judgment on his whole way of life, meaning all about being, uh, having religious experiences. He realized that it is possible to have profound spiritual experiences and a faith that can move mountains, but that such a faith is worth nothing without a deeply present love for people. A similar story is told in the 1970s here in San Francisco when an unknown man walks from his home to the Golden Gate Bridge and jumps to his death. He passes hundreds of people, and later, during the investigation, they find a note on his dresser that read, I'm going to walk to the bridge. If one person smiles at me on the way, I will not jump. Now, these are, of course, very dark and extreme examples, but the theologian um, David Osberger captures this point well when he writes this. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being heard by someone, being seen by them, being listened to, being known by someone is so close to being loved by them that you really can't, the average person can't tell the difference between the two. Wisdom literature in Proverbs gets gets at this very crucial skill of listening as well. Proverbs 18.2 says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in expressing their own opinions. Proverbs says, Fools don't listen. They just hear you and listen to you long enough so that they think they know what you're talking about so they can tell you what they think about what they think you're talking about. That's a fool. Proverbs 18.13 says, To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And one of my most favorite Proverbs of all time says, Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, the purposes of a person's heart are like deep waters, 
but the one who has understanding can draw them out. What this proverb is saying is that people have depth to them, more depth than they even know they have. And why do people do what they do? Well, the purposes of their heart are down there, and sometimes they are so deep, they don't even know why they do what they do. They don't even have access to, like, why did you do that? I don't know why I did that. But the one who has understanding can sit and draw it out. How? How does that person draw it out? And the answer is by listening. And, of course, the banner text for Christian listening is James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Notice how this verse starts, my dear brothers and sisters. What is that? That's God's family. Remember from a few weeks ago and last week? You were born again into God's household, into God's family. And so all the ways that we operated in our old family of origin are no longer acceptable here. We have to retrain ourselves to live in the family of God. So how do you live in the family of God? James says very clearly, this is for everyone. Family of God, brothers and sisters, this is how we are to relate. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You can speak, and you can get angry, but listen for a lot longer, which is pretty much opposite of the way that we live our lives today. Now, how do we, how do we live into God's family? It says, by listening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his classic book called Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer ran an underground seminary uh, uh, during, uh, during Nazi Germany. And this underground seminary lived like a, um, like a, in a communal way of life. And he wrote a book after um, kind of marking what are the markers of, of living communally together. As the Christian life is lived out in community, how are you supposed to live in community? And um, the book is called Life Together. I recommend it to everyone. It's such a classic, insanely good book. In the, the book, under the chapter of service, he has what he calls, um, this is a requirement for good community, Christian community, the ministry of listening. And I'm going to read this slow. This is basically, this teaching is a, is a um, teaching on James and this text here from, from um, Bonhoeffer. He says this. The first service one owes to others in community involves listening to them. Just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for other Christians is learning to listen to them. God's love for us is shown by the fact that God not only gives us God's word, but also lends us God's ear. We do God's work for our brothers and sisters when we learn to listen to them. So often Christians, especially preachers, guilty, think that their only service is always to, have, to offer something when they are together with other people. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people seek a sympathetic ear and do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking even when they should be listening. But Christians who can no longer listen to one another, will soon no longer be listening to God either. They will always be talking, even in the presence of God. The death of the spiritual life starts here. Those who cannot listen long and patiently will always be talking past others, and finally no longer will even notice it. Those who think their time is too precious to spend listening 
will never really have time for God and others, but only for themselves and for their own words and their own plans. I mean, this is it. This is the Janet's thing, and this thing is the sermon today, pretty much, right? <laughs> like, this is it. This is, look, look, listen to what, like, what Bonhoeffer is saying. He's saying, you must, as a Christian community, learn to listen to your brothers and sisters. And learning to listen will take effort, and listening will take time. It will take a lot of time. And if you think your time is too precious to spend listening, soon enough you will not even be able to listen to God. Your whole world will be wrapped up in your own little mind, and you'll be self-centered, bent on yourself, and completely absent of God and others. And you'll be isolated and alone. That. That's what he's saying. Now the question is, how do we learn to listen? In a culture of people who are enmeshed with their phones, too busy to look at others in the eye, too scattered or in our town too driven to be fully present in any one place, whenever we're anywhere in San Francisco, we're 50 different places at one time, how, can we, how do we, as followers of Jesus, learn to listen? Now, what I'm going to share tonight, I brought a stool up because I might have a seat because I just want to have a chat. But you're not going to talk back to me. That's later. You can talk back to me later. We're going to have a little chat. And what I want to talk about tonight for the rest of our, our time is I want to I share the lessons that come for me from a deeply personal place, places of failure and learning. When I was planning this series at the beginning of the year, I was meeting with Michael Zachariah, my uh, executive coach, who gave the Difficult Conversations lecture a few weeks ago. And I was telling him, going into this series, um, in a series on reconciliation later on in the year, how I feel disqualified on teaching on these subjects because of uh, the way that I failed in these areas. And he said, you are actually most qualified, not the most, but most qualified, having failed and owned where you have failed and are learning still. And so tonight, I want to speak from there. So... A few years ago, our staff went through a conflict, a really bad, really bad blow up. If you were here three, almost three years ago, you remember, according to our, our survey, most of you weren't here. <laughs> but, the, but here's my biggest regret, and it was a really, really bad, and there's, the effects of it still linger um, in our church and um, in the people that left, in the people that have stayed. But the, here's the biggest regret that I've learned from this time. My biggest regret, as I look back, is that I didn't listen. There are several reasons for this, but the ones I can learn from are this. This is why, this is why I can put my finger on why, why didn't I listen when people just wanted to talk with me. I didn't know how to listen and also not agree with what I was hearing. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know how to listen and not feel the burden to fix everything. I didn't know how to listen with my soul and not my ego. So here are a couple lessons in listening that I've learned, that I've studied and I've read and I've tried to practice and Ashley and I have tried to practice and it's really, really hard stuff and it's really simple stuff. Most of the stuff you said, I think I learned that in kindergarten, you would be right, but it's really hard to do. So here it is. Lesson number one, learning, listening requires presence. Listening requires presence. 
if you've been a part of this series, this emotionally healthy relationship series, you got you you a lot of people have been going through a lot of like, oh my gosh, like truth is is hitting them in different ways and they almost don't know how how do I process this truth and how do I live into this? How do I change to become a person who lives in the God's family and not simply from my family of origin? This is like, how do I do that? Now, some of us in here are optimizers. We'll go and go deeper on podcasts. We'll go deeper, read more books. We'll like read blogs. We'll like Google things, like that sort of thing. Some of us are driven that way. But how do we really change? How do we relearn how to act and attach in the new family of God? And the answer to that is this. Of course, you can go listen to podcasts and go read a book, but here's the real answer. It will take the presence of others. You change, and you will only change in the presence and with the presence of others. Here is a life-changing paragraph for me from the book, The Relational Soul, that Ashley and I read three years ago, and well, let me share it with you, and I'll explain what happened. Here it is. It says, because of our relational design, we cannot change without the presence of others. Changing the way we learn to attach, resetting the thermostat of our learned level of intimacy, and recalibrating our implicit emotional memory is ultimately beyond our ability. Someone say amen. Amen. It is beyond. You can't do it. We can modify some aspects of our capacity, but satisfying relationships require a transformation we cannot make through self-help methods. We must have the presence of others. Remember, we are created for and by relationships. A transforming presence must be personal. We need the actual presence of another to experience a fundamental shift in our relational capacity. A transforming relationship is not generic or virtual. It is concrete and particular. There is a shift in our relational capacity when a particular person shows up in a particular way in our life. There is a shift in our relational capacity when a particular person shows up in a particular way in our life. This paragraph changed Ashley and our, my marriage three years ago. We were in Kauai. We're on vacation. Um, I have my journals. I was actually rereading them this week um, from, from this trip. And um, the beginning of our trip, I was reading because I remember how monumental the shift was, but I had forgotten how, like how deep it was until I went back and read, that I was journaling literally like three days before we read this paragraph um, together, that I don't know how our marriage would make it. I did not understand, I didn't know how we were going to make it through, what we were going through, um, the, the, the separation that we were experiencing, the the, the way we were not connecting, how I had completely shut off to Ashley, how Ashley had completely shut off to um, the struggles that she was going through, that we were two people that lived together, but we were not connected at all, and we were trying to connect, but we could not. We didn't know if we would make it. We decided during our vacation that we would read Relational Soul together, and um, we fought through the first, like, three chapters, and I think we got to this chapter here. It's chapter four or five. And this, this, this struck something in us to where if we were going to make it through, the particular person was her and me, and we needed to show up in a particular way. And so we sat there on our lanai for hours, like three hours, I think it was four hours, and we, we, we yelled, 
and we cried, and then we were silent. And what we were trying to do is to get down what was underneath, what was going on. And what it took was us not to give up, to spend the time to actually hear each other, to listen to each other. And this was the first time in a long time in our marriage um, I, I wrote, we, we saw each other. Like, this is intimacy, by the way. This is what intimacy is. We saw, we heard each other. We, she showed up in a particular way. I showed up in a particular way. We needed to show up to each other. We actually heard each other. It was the first time in so long that we heard each other. We had to show up. At, there's so many moments. I remember when we were outside that one of us could have bailed. We could have built emotionally. We could have went into protecting mode. We could have just said, I'm done. I'm hungry. I want, co- I want coffee, whatever. We just go do something fun. Let's go to the beach. We're wasting our vacation. Let's not argue about this. There's so many times we could have done that. We just did not, we, we just could not bail. This was a shift. This was a monumental shift where I began to say, I'm going to open my heart again to Ashley. And then she was set, said, I will start toward recovery. This, this moment here. And when you do this right, when you do the presence part, presence is the first part of listening well. When you do it, do it right, when we show up in our relationships as a particular person in a particular way, we help the other people take their own life seriously. Because the problem is when the other person doesn't show up to us, we just don't think our life matters as much. Like, I must not matter to you. And you must not matter to me. I'm not going to take myself seriously if you're not going to take me seriously. But when we actually show up to each other, we, it allows us to take our lives seriously. Henry Nouwen writes this in Out of Solitude. To care means, first of all, to be present to each other. From experience, you know that those who care for you become present to you. When they listen, they listen to you. When they speak, they speak to you. Their presence is a healing presence because they accept you on your terms. They encourage you to take your own life seriously. See, it took me hearing Ashley and taking Ashley on her, on her terms. Not like, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I'm not going to like try to fix you. I'm just going to take you as you are and try to hear where you're at. Okay, so presence. So next lesson. And this is a large point that has subpoints, so hang tight. You're like, we're already on point two, we're almost done. Okay, this one has subpoints, okay? Lots of subpoints. So lesson number two. Listening re- requires incarnation. And I have to explain that word to you if you're new to that word incarnation, and I will in a second. Listening requires incarnation. This here is where presence moves into the place of living in another person's world. Incarnation is the biblical model of love. So in theological terms, if you don't know what incarnation means, the incarnation was the quality, the essence, the glory, and the love of God putting on or adding to His divinity human flesh, okay? Incarnation was, was God becoming Jesus, adding to His divinity human flesh in a way that is shocking and concrete and raw and physically tangible, There was no better way to show humanity the love of God than for God himself to fully enter into our world, both physically and emotionally. John 1.14 says it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, uh, this word, word there, the word is the word, uh, Greek word logos. And it has both Greek implications and Hebraic implications. The logos in Greek thought was the impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos. Greeks said the cosmos, the structure of the universe, was divine because it's perfect in its order and rational because it worked and it was knowable. The marriage of these two thoughts was called the logos. Now, John takes this word logos and says that this divine impersonal force that holds the structure of the cosmos together has become flesh and blood and moved into your neighborhood. It's not impersonal, but intensely personal, and he lived among us. Now, this was crazy because it assigned the attribute of divinity to a mere human. But to the Jews, it was equally insane because what John was saying was that the loving creator God is Emmanuel, is God with us. He took on flesh and was born into our world. As Eugene Peterson says in his translation called The Message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. This is incarnation. Incarnation is God entering into our world. Incarnation is when personal love is made physical and tangible, vulnerable and approachable, and shows up in another person's world. Now, this incarnational model is our model for love. To love as Christ loves is to show up incarnationally in people's lives. Okay, is to show up in other people's worlds and to listen to their world, to hear their world. Christ felt our world. He smelled our world. He felt the pain of it, the, the beauty of it, all of it. He experienced it all. For us to love incarnation, he used to enter into someone else's world to fill their fields. Now, that might sound beautiful, poetic, theological, all this stuff. What does that mean practically? What does that look like? What does it look like to have, to listen incarnationally practically? What does that mean? Okay, from the Emotionally Healthy Relationships book, it says this. To listen, this, this is what it means. This is what incarnational listening means. To listen at a heart level with empathy, attuned to the words and nonverbal communication of another person so that the other person feels felt by you. That's what it means. Incarnational listening means you listen at a heart level with empathy, you listen to the words and nonverbal communication that another person's offering so that the other person feels like you, f- you, you feel me? You know that word, that, you know that phrase, you, you feel me? Like that's, that's happening, right? Okay, that is the what. That's what, it, now how do you do that? How do you listen deeply? To, to take from Proverbs 25, how do we listen to where we draw the deep waters from someone's soul? Okay, so there, I'm going to give you seven subpoints here. These are very practical. I'm going to have a seat because this, this is getting classroom status, okay? So this is like the shift in the sermon where this is not sermonizing as much. It's like, here's how you do it, guys. Okay, you guys ready? Seven, write them down. Number one, here's how you do it. Give the person your full attention. So you're listening to someone, okay? You want to do practice incarnational listening with someone. Give that person your full attention. This might seem obvious, but it's not really that obvious. Here's what you need to do. Put away distractions. Put away your phone. Turn off your phone from buzzing on the table, right? We think, there's so many people that think they can multitask, and that might be true. You might be the rare person that can multitask, but your multitasking looks unkind to the person who's trying to talk to you. So put away 
distraction, give the person your full attention. Create the space so people know they have your presence. Create the space there, okay? So number one, give the person your full attention. Number two, as you listen, begin to step into the speaker's world. Try to feel what they are feeling. Listen to their words and their emotions. So, when you're listening, start slow and be present. In a way, this will feel to you like practicing patience. So, when you start listening to someone, um, just start slow. Tell me, tell me about what's going on. Tell me about the thing that happened with your, with your mom. You're trying to do some family words and stuff. Tell me, tell me more about that. And just create, like, I'm going to be here a minute. Start thinking that when you're listening. I'm going to be here a minute. I want to listen. I'm going to be present here. Okay, here's why you need to start slow. Because rarely does the person speaking begin with what's most important and deepest in their heart. Keep that, keep that point up, sorry. Keep that point up the entire time I'm talking. Rarely does the person speaking begin with what's most important and deepest. So oftentimes when you start to talk, what's deep under there, even if you are conscious of what's deep under there, it's hard for you just to go straight there. You don't even know how to get that out. You're like, oh, I have to actually get this other stuff out first. I'm frustrated. I'm tired. That's what comes out first. Now, if, if you start to engage with their first initial emotions, you will probably get into an argument. This is how it happens in marriage all the time. Like I, Ash comes to me, I'm frustrated. Are you frustrated? Why are you frustrated? Uh, well, why? You shouldn't be frustrated. And then we start fighting, and then 10 minutes later, we don't know why we're fighting anymore. Because I start engaging with that first initial emotion, I, should, I, I, I need to stop and go, oh, tell me more about that. And underneath this frustration is actually hurt. And when we get there, we can start having a conversation. But that doesn't happen at first. It takes a while for someone to like get to what's, and you know what's what most important for Ashley? It just sometimes takes her like three days to get there. Like three days later, she brings something back up. Remember that conversation? You know, I think what I was really feeling was this. I'm like, oh, tell me more about that. On a good day, I say that. Okay, this is like, like the woman at the well and Jesus. Remember this story, Jesus and the woman at the well, um, John 4? Yeah. Jesus strikes up a conversation with this woman, and it seems all this woman wants to talk about is the tension between the Jews and Samaritans, right? She's like, oh, why are you asking me for a drink of water? You're like a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. And then Jesus keeps talking. She goes, oh, you know, the Samaritans, you know, they worship on this mountain, and the Jews, they worship on this mountain. Like, she only seems to talk about that, but Jesus keeps asking questions, He's drawing from the deep waters, not of the well. He doesn't even have any water from the well, but from her heart. He's drawing out deep waters from her heart. See, when we slow down to listen long enough, it helps us hear the real statement or question and to uncover the feeling behind it. Just tell me more about that. The problem is many of us are so preoccupied with ourselves when we listen Meaning, instead of concentrating on what is being said, we are busy either deciding what to say in response or mentally rejecting the other person's point of view. We're just like trying to put play defense. We're like, oh, they said this. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that because I'm going to come back to that because that's wrong. That's so wrong. I cannot wait. No, I just know. Remember, I, no, that's that thing that we talked about before. She said she forgave me, but she obviously hadn't forgiven me about that. Like that, that's what you're doing. 
Or you're like, what this person is saying, they're coming from a whole different, they just completely saw a situation completely wrong that I did, and they're obviously saying something that's like this, their, whole, their whole thesis is wrong at this point, whatever. We tend to listen defensively or judgmentally, meaning we think we know what, what they're going to say next. And so we go, oh, let me interrupt you. I think oh, I know what you're going to say. So next, number three, avoid judging, interpreting, and fixing. Okay, if you don't leave with anything else tonight, leave with this. Avoid, when you're listening to people, avoid judging them or interpreting them or fixing them. You know that song, Fix You by Coldplay? Like one of my favorite Coldplay songs? Like the whole album's not even that good. They even admit the album's not good. They say, what saved this album was Fix You. That song is the song. You know why that song resonates so deeply with everyone? Because we all do this. Don't lie. You know you've sang it in your car alone, really, really loud. Tears streamed out. You're, you're doing it. You're going the whole, right? So I think this is what we're trying to do in most relationships. And most relationships, we're trying to fix people. When we listen to people, we want to be the ones that fix them. We want to be the ones that they say, and like when they get invited to speak at some Stanford commencement address, like this one time I had a conversation with my friend, and they said this, and it fixed me, or whatever, right? This is what, it, what I was trying to do to Ashley for years, I tr- trying to fix her. I think the propensity of this is towards men is greater, but I think everyone tries to do this. I tried to fix Ashley for years, and it backfired in ways that we're actually trying to deal with right now in real time. Interpreting and then trying to fix people is actually one of the ways we try to dismiss people. Fixing is a way we actually try to dismiss people. Parker Palmer, I'm going to share a quote. It's actually long, but it's incredible. Parker Palmer wrote, um, uh, write, wrote several, several books. He's an author and professor. He's a part of a Quaker community. Uh, a Quaker community is known for being a listening community. And he wrote this in his book, A Hidden Wholeness. He says this, We need to understand why the habit of fixing, saving, advising, and setting each other straight has such a powerful grip on our lives. There are times, of course, when that habit is benign, when what grips us is uh, simple compassion. You have a problem, you share it with me, and wanting to help, I offer you counsel in the hopes that it will be useful. So far, so good. But the deeper your issue goes, the less likely it is that my advice will be of any real value. I may know how to fix your car or help you write a paper, but I do not know how to salvage your failing career, repair your broken marriage, or save you from despair. My answer to your deepest difficulties merely reflects what I would do if I were you, which I am not. Even if I were your clone, My solution would be of little use to you unless it arose from within your soul and you claimed it as your own. This is so profound. He's saying fixing people doesn't really work because the things that shift the soul arise from the center of who we are, the place that God inhabits and the place where God begins to change us. And we need revelation from that place. I can help you find it. I can help you maybe discern what God might be doing, but I can't fix you. Actually, he says, he goes on to say, the impulse to fix each other actually comes from an insidious place. He says this, our habit of advising each other reveals its shadow side. If the shadow could speak its logic, it would say something like this. If you take my advice, you will surely solve your problem. If you take my advice but fail to solve your problem, you did not try hard enough. 
If you fail to take my advice, I did the best I could, so I am covered. No matter how things come out, I no longer need to worry about you or your vexing problem. Wow. This is 40 years of being in a Quaker community, of being in a listening community. He's discovering this is what we, when we're trying to fix each other, we're actually, what we're really trying to do is like, you're not my problem. I already solved your problem. You're just not good enough to fix it and, or, or apply my advice. He says, the shadow behind the fixes we offer for issues that we cannot fix is ironically the desire to hold each other at bay. It is a strategy for abandoning each other while appearing to be concerned. Perhaps this explains why one of the most common elements of our time is no one really sees me, hears me, or understands me. How can we understand another when instead of listening deeply, we rush to repair that person in order to escape further involvement? The sense of isolation and invisibility that marks so many lives, not least the lives of young people whom we constantly try to fix, is due in part to a mode of helping that allows us to dismiss each other. We, this is, by the way, this is my biggest problem in relationships. I talk with someone, I'm like, I know, I know, I know what you should do. I'm like, I can fix this right now. And um, I can text you about it later. I can, like, I can get on the phone, I can, I can get on the phone with you. Like, I, I can fix this thing. This is my biggest problem. I think it has to do with being a pastor as well. Pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, have this particular thing of, like, I need to fix you. I've been trying to counter this with a rule. We have this in our staff whenever we do um, staff learning exercises. We also have this rule in our community group, that there is no fixing allowed in community group. There's no fixing allowed in learning exercises. When someone is bearing their soul, we don't say, oh, you know what you should do? You should listen to this podcast to listen to. It's going to fix you. You can't do that. <laughs> like, oh, you know what you should do? You, you, can, ask, you can ask curious questions. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about this. But you cannot fix each other. Okay, number four. No, number three, no fixing. Number four, reflect back to the person what you understood them to say, acknowledging, uh, also while acknowledging their emotions. Reflect back to the person what you understood them to say, acknowledging their emotions. Um, I think the, the next slide, uh, acknowledging their emotions, well, I put the two slides together, sorry. This is for everyone else, okay. Okay, so everyone else, uh, this is not on the screen, but write this down. Number four, reflect back to the person what you understand them to say, and then while you're doing that, acknowledge their emotions, and don't have any judgment when you're doing this. So Michael Zachariah, um, in his Difficult Conversations lecture a few weeks ago, deals extensively with this. It's up on our website tomorrow, so you can listen to that for a way more in-depth part of, of this point. But this is basically, when you're listening to someone else, you restate what you hear the other person saying in your own words while also acknowledging the emotions you're sensing from them. Okay, here's a really important thing that, that, um, that I, I learned in, um, in listening to other people. Is that at this point, when I'm reflecting back to the person what I understood them to say, and I'm acknowledging their emotions, I don't have to agree with them. This, is, this was really hard for me to learn. I thought if I say back to them what they said, they think that I, I agree with them. So I'm not going to give them the benefit of that. I won't say back. What I'll do is just defend. I'll, def I'll say this. Oh, I know what you're saying, and you're wrong. Like, that's what I'll say. <laughs> this, is so, that I, this is so broken, right, And on my part. You don't have to agree with them, but they need to be heard. 
So I can say, what I hear you saying is, especially in, in, a, in a conflict, in an argument, in a, in a hard conversation, I don't have to agree with you. I can say, this is what I hear you saying, and you sound really angry. You sound really confused. You sound really hurt. Like, yes, that's exactly right. Okay, great. Let's, let's have a conversation. Now, I, I don't have to agree with you. I don't agree with a couple parts there, but do you feel heard by me? Now, an example of this, a non-confrontational example of this this morning. This morning, a gal walked up to me before, um, before the, the morning gathering. Her first time at church was Easter Sunday. She was clearly heartbroken. She said um, her, her boyfriend might have to move back to the East Coast because he had a couple family members that passed away, and his job uh, ended here, and he can't find another job, and she's just she's devastated. And um, she said, um, and I, and she was asking, like, for concern and for prayer. And so what I basically did was I said, I go, can I get some clarity? Did you say that he was, you were dating him or was your friend? I think I, I missed that part at the beginning. She said, oh, it was my boyfriend. Okay, okay. I hear, so I was just like, I hear you're like really, really scared and, and um, torn up about the fact that you might be losing your boyfriend to the East Coast. And um, you, you'd like me, to, like me to pray for you. Like, it's just that simple. It's not like that hard. I could have said, you know, I could have offered her advice. could have said, um, you know what? Um, if you love something, let it go. And if it's meant to be, it'll come back to you. <laughs> I could say that. Um, I could say, um, hey, cheer up. Like, God's on the throne. And, um, and God's sovereign. So, um, so, you know, just let it be. Or whatever, I don't know. I could have said something like that. I could cheer her up some way, right? Um, I didn't. Like, the, yeah, I, I ha, again, I, ha, I had to fight the temptation because, of course, I'm like, oh, send me his email. Maybe I can get him a job somewhere. Or whatever, you know? Like, I can't do that. I can't fix, I can't fix this. And I, I can hear her, listen to her, and I go, I want to I lift you up and him up in prayer. Can I pray right now? I mean, that's, that's the extent of it right? Um, this is someone I just met as well. So um, now the hardest thing when you start listening to other people's story is you have to have your own, you have to remain yourself. Sometimes a lot of people, especially people that um, if you're, if you know personality types, Enneagram 9s, um, if you're an Enneagram 9, you tend to enmesh with other people. So their cause becomes your cause, their life becomes your life. Like you enmesh with them and you lose yourself in their thing, so whatever they, they are like telling you about, you're like, yeah, me too. And then you're like, and you become the same person. You're like, I don't know who I am anymore. I'm you now. That's, that is really bad, okay? Um, Jesus became flesh and remained himself, right? He did not like enmesh into the world. He was fully God and became fully man. In, in his incarnation, and that was in torn apart. He literally hung between two worlds, like literally, right? So this is our model too. We have to... I could step into someone else's world, even if they have a, 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 a certain pattern of life that I do not agree with, I can step into their world and listen. I can step in the world, and I can, I can still have my opinion about, um, about politics. I don't have to, like, completely just reject them or enmesh, right? Okay, number five. I'm almost done. Number five, confirm what they said and how they felt was correct. So just ask them. Say, when you, when you repeat back, this is what I hear you saying, is that right? And then you give them space to clarify 
if, what, and how, if, if how you heard them is correct. Now, if you said to them, you sound angry and you want me to um, pay for this thing or whatever. They're like, no, I'm not, I'm not angry. And I don't, I don't want that. I'm sorry if that came out that way. That's not what I meant. You allow them to change. Allow them to go, no, no, that's, if that's what you're hearing, that's wrong. That's not what I meant. Allow them to do, allow them the space to do that. Again, you're creating the space so they can show up. The soul is a shy thing. And when the soul wants to show up, like, it might be they're like, they, they just want to have a relationship with you, but they don't have to say it. And the soul's a shy thing, and it goes away when it feels like attacked or, or misunderstood. So give them space to be understood. Like, te- okay, so um, did I hear this right? This is, this is what I'm, I'm hearing. Like, no, 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 that, that's completely wrong. I might have came out that way. I came, out, I came in kind of hot. I'm so sorry. What you don't do is like, no, I'm going to hold that over you. You came in hot, and you offended me at the very beginning of this conversation, and now I'm offended. That's, that's where the breakdown happens. Like, okay, I'm going to give you space. Okay, like, yeah, at the beginning it was a little offensive, but you're saying that's not what you meant. No, no, I'm sorry that if it came it that way. Will you forgive me? I forgive you. Okay, so what are you saying then? Like, give them space. Let, that, let the, the depth of their soul come out. Bring it out, okay? Number six, ask, is there more? Or tell me more about that. You might have noticed somewhere in their conversation, they started, their voice started to crack and they started getting tears in their eyes. And you know how that thing that happens when you like fight back tears? Like, they fought them back and they went away. You're like, whoa, that was amazing. How'd they do that? Yeah. Tell me more about that time when you said this thing and you, like, were fighting back emotion. Tell me, can you tell me more about that? Or, like, this one time you looked at me with darts in your eyes, like you were trying to stab me with your face. Like, tell me more about that thing. Like, you, it seemed like you were really angry at me. Can you tell me more about that? Like, just be curious. Like, ask them more about this, okay? Seven. Lastly, repeat this process until the person feels heard and you understand where they're coming from. Repeat it. Now, you might be saying, this is a lot of work. I've said this before. Yes, it is a lot of work. Being, the, being someone who's a, an emotionally mature and present person takes a lot of work. You don't stumble into this. Some of you guys are naturally good listeners. For you, God bless you. It's amazing. It's a gift. I think it's a gift. For most of us, we have to learn this, and it's not easy. This is why it's in the Bible. That's why it's in the Bible. Be slow, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because we tend to not do that. We have to learn this. And to quote David um, Osberger again, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. When you hear someone they will feel so loved by you. When you are heard by someone, you will feel so loved. Now, in all of this, you may be thinking, Dave, this is all great. I want this for me. I want someone to listen to me like this that I don't have to pay, right? Like, this, my therapist does this, but I don't want to have to, I want this to come from my community. Now, therapists are great. I see one, whatever. Like, that's a great. But like, I want to do this. I want to have this in my community group. I want to have this in my relationships. I want to have this in my, like my marriage or the person I'm dating or whatever. And I would say to that, amen. Yes, yes. But it starts with listening to others. Here's why I say that. This is, goes back to the Bonhoeffer quote. Because when we start to listen to others, we slow down and we, ha- we start developing the ministry of the ear, the ministry of listening. And then it transfers into our life with God. 
we start to be able to cultivate a life where we're slow and listening to God. Sometimes we need tangible flesh and blood people to help us to do that. And then when we start listening to God, we start to we will start to listen to our own lives. And what I mean by that is this. The place where God dwells, the union that we have with God, Christ lives in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And when we start to listen to others and be attuned to the voice of God, we can start to listen to our own lives. We can start to listen to what, what goes on deep into our own souls. We start to listen to the place where God invites us to union with him and, and starts to realign things in our own lives. This is the process. It start, but I think, I really believe, it starts with making space to listen to others. A fourth grade teacher once asked her class, what is listening? After a few moments of silence, one little girl raised her hand. Listening, she said, is wanting to hear. Wanting to hear. I want to be a community, as, as Reality San Francisco, a community of people who want to hear, who want to hear from God, who want to hear from each other, who want to hear from our own lives and our, let our own lives speak. We, we want, I want to be to where we're tuned into listening to others well and that our, we become safe people. So when people come into our church, they feel safe to, be, to express themselves, to talk, um, and to be heard and be held here. Would you stand as we pray? I feel like I, I'm hearing God say to us tonight that He listens to us, that He hears us, that He's done everything to come near us, to take on flesh and blood, to send us His Holy Spirit, to be with us, to listen, to sit with us, He's patient. Some of you have run from God over and away from God over and over and over again. And God is so patient with you to where, even as a pastor, that baffles my mind, how he's so patient. As a broken sinner myself, he's patient. And Lord, thank you. I know you're going after us, that you're on the move to restore us, to heal us, to make us this kind of people that behave as brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God. You're patient with us, God. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your ability to heal and save and set right. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for coming near us, dying on a cross for our sin, sending us your Holy Spirit, promising us a union with you. Thank you, God. May we cultivate that. May we cultivate the ministry of the ear. In Jesus' name.